Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, our family pastor, J.C. Thompson, wraps up his two-week series on the book of Titus. If you want to watch the video of this message or listen to this week's worship, you can do so on our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or you can find all of that and more on our Brookwood Church app. We pray that this message encourages you in your walk with Christ. I'm thankful because it is true that there is nothing else we can do, and yet we are not without hope because Christ has sacrificed himself for us. And so when we speak of that grace, we can know that, yes, I have nowhere else to run, but I will always have a place to run because of Christ. Uh, We are continuing and ending our series today titled Devoted. Uh, My name is J.C. Thompson. I'm the family pastor here. And last week we talked about the first part of our theme verse for today, Titus 3.8, where Paul, writing a letter to Titus, said to him as a pastor, insist on these teachings. And we learned that those teachings that Paul was asking Titus to insist on was the truth of the gospel, the grace of God, the the Trinitarian nature of our salvation, God's love, Jesus' life and sacrifice and resurrection, and the Holy Spirit's deposit into our life, making all of the realities of God's love real to us in our human experience. Paul asked Titus to insist on those things. Why? Why? The second half of Titus 3.8 shows us that we'll insist on these teachings so that so that those who believe in God will devote themselves to doing good. And so we learn no matter where you're at, no matter what's going on in, in our time of information overload where maybe in a week's time you've been told that you need to lose weight in order to be your best self, maybe replace all of the gluten in your life with gluten-free food, maybe if you get enough essential oils or become debt-free or just practice some mindfulness meditation, you will truly embrace your best life. And maybe all of you heard all of those things this past week. Paul was sharing with Titus that there needed to be some focuses in his life. And in this short two-week series we talked about last week, being devoted to God is one of those focuses. And today we will talk about being devoted to good works, being devoted to good works. If you've got your outline, you can go ahead and take it out. As I said, today our theme is Titus 3.8. We'll be jumping around the book of Titus and a couple other places today, but this theme of good works is a consistent theme in Titus, and so he talks about lots of different facets of what it means to do good, and today we will learn how we can grow in our devotion to good works. So if you'll pull out your outline on the first blank, I can grow in my devotion to good works by understanding that they are a result of my salvation. They are a result of my salvation. Well, before we get 
too far into talking about good works. I thought it would be good to define it. In fact, this week, I was kind of asking around the office, what is a good work? And the look of utter confusion uh, on some of my staff's face of like, you know, good, good stuff. Uh, uh, as I asked them the question, defining the term is so important for us because one, we are learning to live the godly life. And so God defines these things for us, but oftentimes we just kind of assume we know what these things are. So I wanted to take a minute and say, here's what we believe a good work is based on the language provided for us in Scripture. First, I'll look at the word work, the word work. In Greek, that word is ergon, and it simply means a deed or an action. And when we look at Scripture, actions aren't just the things we do outside of us. They're also the feelings that we have, the plans that we make, the thoughts that we have, any of those things that we do, they carry out an inner desire that is present in us. So our work is doing the things that come from inside of us. In other words, we cannot separate our work, the things we do, from the desires inside of us. We do what we desire. We do what we desire. And the word good here is a Greek word, kalos. It means beautiful, but a beauty in a particular way. Like, for instance, when I eat a delicious hamburger, which I think is a thing of beauty, I say that is good. But that's not what Scripture means when it says good, okay? But it is what I mean. It's delicious. The word good here means beauty by the reason, the purity of someone's heart and life, something that is praiseworthy, or as God would define something as morally good. So in other words, good works, doing good works is essentially the whole life of the believer, and it comes from being Good, according to God. The whole life of the believer lived for the glory of God is how we will define good works, which means we can't separate the stuff that we do and present that to God as good, but the rest of our mundane, routine existence is not. So I, I want to just pose a question to you this morning. If you were to be face-to-face with God and you were to present your good work to him, what thing would you present? What thing would you present to God knowing that it's good enough to share with him, to be evaluated by God? See, the challenge is, is that when I think of me, now you guys probably don't do this, but when I think of myself, I think about, it's very easy for me to think about the good things that I do because I have a tendency to separate them. You know, I'm planning to do these things. I'm exercising initiative to do these things, right? I'm thinking about, well, you know, this person just had a, a rough time, uh, maybe some struggles, maybe some suffering they're going through. How can I come alongside them and help them? And that is the type of thing that we would say is our good deeds. That's what we do. 
But the problem is, is we don't talk about the words that we use with our spouse or our children. We don't talk about how we value our time on our calendar or the money in our bank account. We only say, let me fill up my shopping cart with the things I intentionally set aside to be sacrificed for God. And don't just look at all the rest of the stuff. And the problem is, one, that's just not true according to Scripture. God views the whole totality of our existence. But it's also, what in the world do I think I'm going to put in my shopping cart to be able to present to God? I mean, what do I really think is good enough to give to God to say, this is it? This work, this thing, this is how I want you to view me. But isn't that what we do? See, some denominations, some churches may teach that our salvation comes because of our works or by our works or through our works. But Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture teaches that when we are born again, our life, and when I say life, I don't necessarily mean circumstances. I mean our inner being, our desires change. And it's not a, they might change. No, they change, like it's just set in stone, 100% change. Now, some of them substantially change immediately to your perception. For instance, some of you, this may be your story that you struggled with alcohol or some sort of addiction, and when you came to Christ, done. Some of you, that may not be your testimony. Some of you may have been revealed, this is not the right way to live anymore. And so you work and strive to not have that be what controls your life anymore, partnering with God in the new desires that he gave you. So we get new life, we get new attitudes, we make new decisions, and we have new behaviors, all the result of us being changed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.10 says it this way, For we are his workmanship. I'm just pausing for a second. I don't view myself that way. I don't view myself as a work of art or anyone's masterpiece. I mean, I'm a bald guy with a pretty good beard. But ultimately, I'm not going. God is displaying his glory through me. And yet, that's what Scripture says is true about us. But not just in our appearance or the decisions and things that we do, but also through how we feel when someone is around us, we all know those people, you show up in their space, in their essence, their aura, and you just start getting anxious. It's like they're everywhere, right? Some people are the opposite. You enter their presence and you feel like you are going too fast and you need to slow down. Our presence can change people through Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says that we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, we're changed into Christ's workmanship for one purpose, one of those purposes is to do good works, 
to be God's people, changed by him, accomplishing his will on the planet. God has prepared a life for you. He's prepared a life for you. And you should live in obedience to those things that God has prepared for you, to walk in them. And all those things happen because our allegiance has changed. We are no longer living for ourselves. We're living for Christ. I think one of the worst things that we can do for folks who have no relationship with Christ is encourage them to do good things. I'll say that again because some of you didn't hear me, I think. One of the worst things we can do to someone who does not have a relationship with Christ is to encourage them to do good things. Why? Because then they'll think they're good. And here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. We're created by God. If we've been revealed God's loving kindness, if we've accepted the gift of salvation given to us through Jesus Christ, and we start to do good things as a result, we know our standing with God is not based on our goodness, but based on Christ's sacrifice. And so we know all the good I do would never measure up enough to God. But if we try and encourage people who have no relationship with God, who have not been reborn, that you just need to do good stuff, just keep going, no, 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 do good things, they will think that their standing with God is a result of the good things that they do. And that's just not true. It's not true. And it's why we see Paul urging Titus first to insist on teaching the gospel to people so that they can understand that they were enemies of God and yet God loves them, sacrificed his son for them, and the Holy Spirit comes to make all things new. And when we do that, when people embrace that, they live good lives. But when we ask people to do good things before truly embracing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, it's like duct taping apples onto a grapevine. One, it looks real bad. Two, the vine itself will not be able to hold the weight that we've placed on it. And it will falter, and eventually the, the vine itself will die. And yet that's what we do. We wonder why our country is in the shape that it's in. We wonder why the people that we work with who don't know Christ drive us crazy with their language or their behavior. And we want them to change, but sometimes we want them to change because of the convenience it means to us. We have to understand that good works only come as a result of our salvation. So the question is, is, have you seen change in your life? Not just do you think about doing good things more, but are you good? Are you good? Because of Christ, we are good. 
He has taken a heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh that we can feel things we haven't felt before. Not only can I grow in my devotion to good works by understanding that they're a result of my salvation, but I can also grow in my devotion to good works by upholding my responsibility. Upholding my responsibility. Titus 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Man, what our world would look like if we embraced this reminder. Paul is sharing with Titus that becoming a follower of Christ does not mean that we negate our responsibility of citizens on earth, but instead we should live as citizens of heaven in the place that we are on earth. Paul mentions that in part not because people were doing the wrong thing, but instead sometimes spirit-led life comes in direct conflict with being a citizen of a particular nation. Sometimes it's not preferences. Sometimes it means they're asking me to worship someone other than God. And so rather than throw it all up and go, all of this is horrible, Paul is reminding Titus to teach his congregants that being a follower of Christ means you are a follower of Christ first, but it also means you're a citizen of the nation in which God has placed you. And part of that responsibility is submitting to the authority that God has placed over you. Now, I want to be clear here. The pulpit is not a political tool to be leveraged. I'm going to say that again. The pulpit is not a political tool to be leveraged. The challenge for a pastor, however, is to teach you and to teach myself what it means to be a citizen of heaven in the place in which we live. And it's not up for a party to decide that. Scripture defines what that looks like for us. So it means sometimes we have to talk about what may seem like political issues because they are life issues for us who follow Christ. And it means that before I figure out which party aligns with my values, I make sure my values align with God's values. And it also means that who God has placed in authority, whether I want him there or not based on my preferences, my role is to come under submission to that unless it directly conflicts with the worship of God, not my preferences. And it doesn't matter which leader is in place because they've all been placed there by God. All of them. And that's a challenge for us. Because as we know, human beings are placed in places of authority. And human beings struggle to be good. 
I think it's important for us to also see in these first two verses that Paul is not just talking about behaviors, choices, and decisions. He's talking about our attitudes, our emotions, our feelings. Again, helping us understand that our good work is not just a thing that we do. It's all of us. It's every part of our life. Now, one question when it comes to our responsibility that's been a question for thousands of years is, what is God's responsibility and what is my responsibility? What is God's responsibility and what is my responsibility? Well, what you'll see in Scripture is that that distinction is never really separated for us. God is both sovereign in control of everything and we are responsible We're responsible for both the positive decisions that we make and the negative decisions that we make. But it's interesting how Scripture teaches us to think about these things. I'll give you one example, because normally these passages of Scripture that talk about our responsibility also share with us what God is doing. And so we'll look at just one example of that today in Philippians chapter 2. The end of verse 12 says this, Work hard... It does not say work a little bit. It does not say think about working. It says work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. So that's verse 12. The verse that directly follows verse 12 is verse 13, which just says this. It says that for it is God working in you. It is God working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. So, JC, what you're saying is if Scripture is telling me to work hard, and it's also saying that God is working in me. Yes. It's amazing how many times we see a commandment to obey reinforced and supported by God's provision to obey. It means that God wouldn't ask us to obey anything. He doesn't give us the power to obey. And it's why we're held responsible. Let me ask you a question. Do your children do what they say or what you've told them to do because it's in them to do it and say it, or because you've taught them to do that and say that thing either on purpose or on accident? The answer is both. Because sometimes you go, they got that from me. And sometimes you see something that you've shared and shared and shared and shared with them and they embrace it as their own philosophy of life. See, Paul describes our role in 2 Corinthians as being Christ's ambassador. Now, I remember being a little kid. I don't know if you all had these times, but we would have government officials come into, like, our school. And I remember one time I was in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and the governor came to our school, which we didn't have anything but an elementary school and a post office, so it was kind of weird to have the governor there. We were like, what are you doing here? But I remember meeting this person. I remember all the fanfare around them. There was something unique and different about this individual because of the position that he was placed in. 
And then when I met him, I thought he was going to do some cool magic trick or he'd be able to tell me everything was going to work out and the world was going to change and be a better place. But then he was just some old man. And I thought, what a letdown. We were told the governor was coming and this is going to be great and awesome. I'm in like second or third grade and I'm thinking I'm going to meet this cool guy. There's a bunch of people in suits with like weird headset things on and he just shakes my hand. It's boring. We're called to be Christ's ambassador because we are foreign citizens here. And we're not just a citizen. We have a role and we have a designation here. Which means when you go into your workplace and you're about to scan your ID to get in or enter your credentials to clock in or ADP, do your payroll stuff, do you also think, I'm not just here to collect my check for the time in which I work, I'm also here as the representative of Jesus Christ in this place. When I roll up into my house after I'm done with work for the day, or I show up to my kid's school and my driver's license gets scanned, do I also realize that I am not just a parent? I'm not just a husband. I am Christ's representative in that place. I have more in common with a woman from the Middle East who's a follower of Christ than I have with someone who's a man who's not a follower of Christ in Greenville, South Carolina. And the challenge is, I don't think we truly understand the implications of that. Because our whole life should be different. How would your job change, your family change, if you begin viewing yourself as an ambassador of Christ where He has placed you? Would you use the same words? Would you put more effort into your work? Would you be more honest in your dealings with contractors? Would you be more patient or considerate of your employees' needs? What has God given you specifically as a responsibility in the place and time that you're in, based on the gifts, strengths, and weaknesses that you have, are you following God in all that He's asked you to do in life? That is our good work. I want you to write down one thing that would change if you started to view yourself as Christ's ambassador in your life. Take a minute. What's one thing that would change if you viewed yourself as Christ's ambassador? Not only can we grow in our devotion to good works by understanding that this work is a result of our salvation by upholding my responsibility in that work, but also by underscoring the grace of God, underscoring the grace of God. Now, for me, I'm revealing something to you here right now. I am really bad at grammar. I always have been. 
Now, what's wonderful is the internet came along. So I don't have to actually use grammar anymore. It's wonderful. I can write however many contractions I want. I can speak without punctuation and type it into a little text message and send it on. It doesn't matter. I've never been corrected on my grammar in a text message. It's wonderful. But if you're like me and you struggle with grammar, I I want to show you today one of the things that's important for us to understand in our life as a follower of Christ, and it's the underline or the underscore mark. If you were to be reading something, whether it's a novel or an article, or maybe even someone did text you and underline it, which I've never seen before, what does that underscore, that underline mean? What does it mean? Pay attention. Emphasis. It doesn't change anything about the word. The word is still the same. But if it were underlined, you're telling your readers or your audience, hey, don't miss this. I'm underlining it. I want you to look at this word. That is what our good work is for the grace of God. It doesn't change it. It doesn't make it more lovely or beautiful. It does not make it anything different than what it is, which is God's lovely, amazing grace. But what we do with our good work is we tell the world, look at this. Look at what has changed in me. Look at how good God is. When we do God-honoring good things, people are inclined to listen to the message of the grace of God because we point to it with our life. Titus 2.10 says this, but they must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive in every way. The ESV renders this word attractive, adorn, adorn the doctrine of the grace of God. The way that I think about this is a Christmas tree. Can we just say for a second that Christmas trees are weird? Now, some of you, you may be offended by what I just said, but let me explain it to you. You cut down a tree, thus ending its life, and place it on a stake inside of your home for a season, and then it's thrown into the garbage or burned in a fire. Well, JC, but it's, it's special. No, it's a tree. But then we put ornaments on it. And we say to everyone that comes inside of our house, pay attention to this tree. And all of us look at it and go, that's lovely. That's amazing. That's wonderful. And yet the entire time, it is a dead tree. And if you don't water it, it will shed all of its goodness all over your floor. But we adorn the tree with our ornaments. Maybe it's pictures of our life, or maybe it's they're all color-coded and themed and patterned for us. Maybe there's lovely stars or our children's projects placed, adorned on this tree. And we look at it as a work of art. 
That's what we do with the grace of God. Something that may be utterly confusing to those who have not understood life with God. They can look at our life and go, that is lovely. How can I live like that? What can I do in my life to have the peace, the love, the patience, the goodness that you show in yours? Matthew 5, 16 says it this way. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Our works are the underline on the grace of God. We shine our light onto God's goodness for people. What I love about light is light is most effective in the dark. Now, it's wonderful we all come here for the light show, right? And everybody shows off their light, and we all talk about how good Jesus is. But then we get thrust into the darkness of our neighborhoods or our jobs or our family life. And that is where we have the most opportunity to shine. But do we believe that? See, even... If our circumstances change and we become someone who at our workplace or in our family, we are blamed or accused of wrongdoing, we still have an opportunity to shine our light. Scripture teaches us that our behavior towards those outside of the faith matters, especially when our circumstances place us in negative situations. In other words, the darker the place that you've been put in, the better the opportunity to shine a light on God's grace. But it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that because some of us, wrongly so, have been taught that following God means my circumstances will make me successful in the eyes of the world, and comfortable in the eyes of the world. I mean, we believe that. If I follow God, every decision I make at work, every project, every sales call, every opportunity will be a raving success. But that's not true. Do you believe that God might place you in a situation in which everything fails around you? Do you believe that is God showing you His goodness? Do you believe that God is reaching out to show you mercy because everything around you is failing? And that's what He does. It's not the pretty picture that we'd like to paint. And his reality of following Christ. When we look back on our suffering, all of us who follow and embrace Christ would say, this is just what I needed. And yet it is difficult to remain steadfast in the midst of suffering.
But that is how God's grace is underscored. Some of you in this room are suffering. Some of you have been suffering for a long time. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's a child born with a disability. Maybe it's a chronic illness that you have. Maybe it's a diagnosis that you did not want to be given. Maybe when you look around, it may seem like you're the only one going through this. I just want to encourage you. Find God's goodness and grace in the midst of your suffering. And allow people to see how God is changing you. That is how we shine a light on the grace of God. When everything's going well, I'm not sure that people are that interested in what we're doing. But when things go difficult and we seem to have peace and we still have room to love others, people want to know how you came to that place. If we view our lives as a living sacrifice, not only will our actions be different, but so will our goals, our dreams, and even the satisfaction of a job well done. Let me give you some scenarios to play out. Would you choose honesty or a promotion at your job? Would you choose the discipleship of your family or traveling abroad? Would you choose investment for retirement or investment for eternity? And here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. It's not as black and white and easy as you would think it would be. We live a spirit-guided life. So it's my favorite thing about saying good. You know, one of my favorite stories about Jesus, he's in a crowd and someone is blind and he spits on the ground. Now, I have small children, two boys. If I ever caught them spitting on the ground, I would not say, this is clearly the way in which we honor God in the Thompson household. We spit on the ground. But not only does Jesus just spit, he also picks it up rubs his hands together, and places it on another human being's eyes. I think if that were to happen today in what we know about germs and disease, we would tackle Jesus. (laughs) What he's doing doesn't look good. In fact, some might can even make the argument that it looks harmful. And yet... He restored that man's sight. When you hear from God what you should be doing in your life, everyone else may look at you and go, what a bad decision. What are you going to do to your family? How are you going to survive? What about the years you've put in? What God does may not always look good, but it always is good. And so if God has called you to something, you obey, you obey, you obey, because it is always good. What if we were a church who just decides to be devoted to God and devoted to good works? 
What would our church look like? What would our community look like if all of us embraced these focuses for our life? What conversation that you've been avoiding would you have? What decision that you've been hesitant about would you make? What risk would you take to be devoted to the things that God has called you to be devoted to? Living the good life of God does not mean living the comfortable life of American materialism. They are not the same thing. Let us take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus. Let's pray. God, as our counselors come down, we thank you that you have done what is good for us. And we worship you and we thank you for that. We thank you for the men and women who have influenced us with their good works. We thank you that you use them to reveal your love to us. I thank you personally for my mom and my dad who love me. I thank you for Charlie Bishop, my first grade Sunday school teacher. I thank you for all the men and women who have influenced me because they see it as their good work. And I pray that all of us would reflect on the people that have made a difference in our life and thank them and thank you for it. God, I pray if there's someone in here who is curious about the good life, I pray that you draw them, that they'd share with one of our counselors and ask how they can embrace it. And I pray, God, that you would speak clearly to us about what we should be doing as your servants. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we're able to pray these things and all God's people said, amen. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. Email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326 in order to get in contact with our Connections team. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.